Welcome to BIV Today, the daily podcast from the Business and Vancouver Newsroom. I'm Kirk Point, publisher and editor-in-chief. The British Columbia life sciences sector has grown in leaps and bounds in recent years, particularly during the pandemic, and earned further international attention for its innovations. But an important ingredient of its growth has been its attention to not only developing ideas, but protecting them. Our conversation today is going to examine the importance of intellectual property, how the life sciences sector, among other places, needs to systematically shield its ideas from theft worldwide, and the challenges and opportunities in this field. Joining me now is Wendy Hurlberg. She's the CEO and president of Life Sciences BC. She's someone who's right in the center of the action, as is Brian Kingwell. He's a partner in the Gowling WLG law firm's Vancouver office in the Intellectual Property and Life Sciences Group. Good to have you both. Thank Good you. Good to be here. Thanks, Kirk. Listen, we'll, uh, we'll get to the more serious, uh, difficult questions a little later on, but let's kind of start uh, with the with the five pointers, as they say in game shows. Uh, let's, <laughs> Brian, Brian, help help me with this. Uh, what are we talking about actually with IP, with intellectual property? There are a, a range of categories of intellectual property and for early stage life sciences companies, patents and trade secrets are usually the most important. Other categories are copyright, trademarks, designs, so you don't want to lose track of those. In essence, though, fundamentally, what intellectual property is, is ideas that are protected. So ideas that aren't protected are available, as you suggest, for others to beg, borrow, and steal. Ideas that are protected become intellectual property, and it's the property part of that. They become an asset. Wendy, when you take a look at... Um... Uh, from a view from 5,000 feet on this one, and you assess the sector, does does British Columbia do a very good job? Does Canada do a very good job at protecting its IP? Um, I think there are areas that we do, um, and there are certain areas that we need to always keep our eyes on thinking about how are we competitive globally, which I think Brian will probably be able to talk a little bit more about. But building off of what Brian said, so he's defined what intellectual property is. And as the non-lawyer in the crowd, it's basically those ideas and trade secrets and discoveries that are super important. And when you try and protect them, yes, we wanna protect them in Canada, but ultimately for a life sciences company to grow and be successful, they're eventually gonna be operating globally. So there's a lot of strategic thought into how do I protect them globally? And how does Canada's IP protection laws stack up against global global um, IP protection laws. Yeah. Tell me, both of you, and I'll start with you, Wendy, on this one. Who Who is affected by this? I mean, how large a cohort are we really talking about? Well, in British Columbia, we have 2,000 life sciences companies based off of 2018 data. I would argue it's probably grown 15 to 20% since then. Of those, they all have some form of IP. So one of the data points that we have is those 12, those uh, 2,000 companies, 12,000 of them have employees. So what's happening with the remainder 800, you might ask? Those are very likely individuals that have found something that they want to protect per Brian's definition. And yet they're sitting in academia or research institutions, but because they've gone ahead and protected that IP, they have created a company around it yet they may be an employee still within that academic or research center. So I look at that 800 as pipeline, yeah. as in those are, those are our future companies. 
that are going to eventually spin out of academia or research institutions and start employing people and growing and uh, you know so using their IP to develop innovative solutions for the life sciences sectors. So Brian, Wendy's done I think a very good job in, in defining uh, the cohort and all of this. What is the real importance, do you think, in protecting IP? Well, for that cohort, um, and it is a growing cohort in the sense that most of the sectors of the economy are becoming dependent on intellectual property. And so for that cohort of, of growing, the growing number of businesses depend on intellectual property, the, the reason that it's central to, to what they do is that it is uh, an asset that can be capitalized on in a, in a variety of ways. It's, it's the way in which modern companies define their competitive advantage. It's a knowledge economy. Most sectors of the economy are becoming knowledge-based industries. And in those industries, the competition is for ideas. And the way in which that competition for ideas is measured is in intellectual property, your ability to capture it and utilize it uh, and, and differentiate, differentiate yourself from your competitors based on it. Wendy, it sounds like the protection of IP actually helps define a company's valuation as an asset. Uh, particularly when it's doing something like moving into an IPO. That's that's exactly it. Per what per what Brian said, this is this is an asset. So early stage companies, their assets are their people and their knowledge. And um, so the more they can tie the people and the knowledge together within a company, the more that protects it that one of the two don't end up disappearing. And that fundamentally is the, um, you know, what ultimately determines your attractiveness for investment. And I would argue your attractiveness to recruit further talent yeah. that, you know, want to be competitive in this knowledge economy. So, so is that the reason why an IP strategy is, is a core competency? An IP strategy is, especially for early stage companies, critically important for them to be able to position themselves well for the attraction of capital and people. Hmm. Brian, what, why aren't companies in the early stages always focusing on their IP issues? Well, they're necessarily distracted by the very many other things that they need to do to survive. It's a very competitive world. and. The other uh, facet of that is that intellectual property is a little esoteric. There are aspects of intellectual property that are unlike, for example, the, the technical business of innovation. So it's, it crosses over between the law aspects, legal aspects, important legal aspects about how you define intellectual property and very technical aspects about how you understand what your innovation, what problems your innovation solves. So I think, I think it's easy. Um, to, to be put off by those characteristics of intellectual property and to fail to appropriately um, manage it. Brian, is it at the early stage where most common mistakes are made? Yeah, there's, it is, it is a, 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 I think if the, those mistakes fall out of the fact that it's easy to be distracted and, and that committing resources to properly managing intellectual property necessarily takes away from some of the other things that you're going to be doing. And so they aren't so much mistakes as questions about allocation of resources and prioritization. They, they, they end up being questions about how important is intellectual property to your organization, and that can change over time. 
but I think in terms of what you might call an overarching mistake, it's often the case that it's underappreciated at an early stage how important intellectual property will ultimately be to the valuation of the company. Wendy, without naming names, uh, give us some examples, though, of how companies have paid the price for not having an IP strategy. Well, I can't talk about any specific examples, but I, you know, you certainly see and can read about examples of where um, people people did it too late, and then all of a sudden there were lawsuits and people are fighting over really amazing technology that can be very impactful, but they're getting tied up in, in battles. And, you know, this is Brian's world um, in battles uh, of debating that. The other um, paradoxical um, problem, which I think is where having a very strong intellectual, uh, intellectual um, patent attorney or strategic partner is that some people have actually invested too much at the beginning because they tried to do it in an unstrategic manner and sort of peanut butter themselves across too many jurisdictions. And it's something that having a really strong partner working with you and having IP as part of your critical uh, growth strategy so that you can be really strategic about what, what you're pulling when. Because the other thing with IP is that it's time limited. So if you take it too early, and as we all know in life sciences, it's a long time from discovery to commercialization. And so you, ha- you really have to be thinking about how long am I going to have my protection and how does that align with when I'm actually going to be commercially viable and out there with my, you know, with my, uh, with my invention. Um, Brian, this will probably sound like the opportunity for a, a commercial in this one. But I do want to know about why uh, certain advice is needed in this, because obviously there's a lot of contract law in all of this, but, but there are some things that are probably quite variable in it. Uh, is, is IP one of those areas where you really have to get a particular type of advice? Yeah, it's a particular kind of advice because it's, it's an unusual set of rules that govern the exercise of maximizing value in intellectual property. It is unlike technological innovation. Uh, it's unlike managing the finances of a business. It's a, an enterprise with an entirely separate set of rules that govern whether you're going to succeed or fail. And so it requires advice, typically from people who've spent time within that world, understanding intellectual intellectual property parameters in the context of business parameters. And so it, uh, it, it is a separate set of skills uh, and often the, the, the challenge is to integrate the outside advice that you're going to get from outside advisors with the business and the, the strategic goals of the business. So that, that's the, the primary challenge. And the reason to look for outside advice is to augment the internal management of the company with outside advice that gives you insights into this somewhat esoteric world of maximizing value through intellectual property. I'd like to get uh, from both of you some input on this one and what criteria companies need to apply though in searching for help and when and how. So Wendy, why don't you start with some? Um, So 
having had a career as a CFO and COO and worked in business development and lots of contracting, there are certain areas that I would never pretend to act on my own. <laughs> and one of them is intellectual property. The other is probably the complexity of liability clauses. So I think I'll, I'll probably answer the question a little bit differently. I would, as soon as I think I have something that I want to patent or have a good idea, I would look for a, an advisor that is also very business savvy. Mm -hmm. A lot of our, um, a lot of our, especially our SMEs, they're the scientists and the researchers that are brilliant people that have come up with amazing discoveries. And so as much as they need intellectual property advice so that they can really understand what do I do with my invention? Do I do anything with it right now? Or do I just keep it to myself and continue to develop it where it might be more valuable later than now? Um, but you also need somebody that can really also help understand what strategically they can do with this invention. So, you know, those people that can play that role of, an IP advisor, but also be able to think about it in the strategic context of where is this knowledge and asset going to be able to be used and applied would be super valuable. Yeah. Brian, pick up on that. What yeah, that? well, it, it follows naturally from what Wendy said in the sense that I think that you're usually looking for someone who can be part of the team. And I, that's the most rewarding sort of relationship, I think, on both sides in the sense that the closer your intellectual property advisor can be, to your innovators and other managers within the company, to everybody within the company who's engaged in the enterprise of capturing value and innovation, the better off you'll be. So it's really, you're looking for somebody who's part of the team, somebody who's able to exchange information easily with the team, understand your changing goals and ambitions and limitations and resources, and give Frank, and as Wendy says, business savvy advice about how to allocate those resources in the most cost-effective way. And Brian, how are companies guided through this process? Is it is it an ongoing thing? You say they make them part of the team. Does that mean that that you know you're you're there in perpetuity as every innovation emerges? That, that is the best way to, to I think be guided in the sense that the open dialogue and consistent back and forth and apprising IP advisors about your changing ambitions, the changing circumstances of the company gives the advisor a basis for providing cost-effective advice. And so it is very much, I think, an ongoing team relationship that will evolve over time, but you're, you're guided by the ability of, of the team to work well together and the, the intellectual property advisor as part of that. And Wendy, with those single scientist companies that you referred to earlier in, the, in that pipeline, how does a company make sure that it can afford this, that it's not running up its cost unnecessarily? I was just going to say that saying that you're going to have your advisor with you on the long haul doesn't mean that they're working for you 30 hours a week through that long haul. I think it's really important to recognize that they're a strategic partner but there's a reason they're outside of the organization, not inside, because you don't need them all the time. Like you need them through the life of the, of the IP, but they, you know, they're going to be, it's like any relationship with, 
you know, your investment lawyer, for example, you know, you may not talk to them for six months and then you're getting close to an IPO and then you talk to them every day. So I think it's important that what was just described doesn't necessarily have to be very expensive. Um, now I'm speaking like now this is where Brian may, if he could kick me under the table, but, um, but I don't think it doesn't need to be like that. You need to develop that right strategic relationship with the partner that will be there at the right points. And the more that they understand the knowledge and, you know, the, what is being, uh, what is being protected, the more they can be there at the right time. And they can say, you know, you don't need to do anything now, but let's get to this next milestone and let's be there. But I think it's important that you have that, that, that resource available through the journey. It doesn't mean that it's a big budget item every, always through that journey. Yeah. And Wendy, the reason that we're doing these things by Zoom now is so that we don't have an in-person situation where people can kick other people. Yeah, yeah. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, last bit, and then it would be a, a little bit of advice for any company that's looking uh, really and, and pondering the fact that it may have ideas that really deserve this protection. Um, Brian, help, help us with this one to start. Uh, what's the advice uh, on, on some of the first things that companies ought to look for? Uh, the advice is to reach out early and to talk to potential IP advisors. Find th The reason intellectual property professionals are in this business is because we love ideas too. Mm -hmm. And you'll find a very receptive audience in, in an intellectual property advisor who will listen to what your ideas are, bounce ideas around, tell you when the clock's starting or not, and listen to your story about what your ambitions are. That's, that's the best part of our job is being a part, small part, albeit usually, of a, a, a way that somebody is solving important problems in the world. And so uh, you can, I think, both keep costs down and maximize returns by, by reaching out early and, and having those open and frank conversations and involving your outside IP advisor in the excitement of the success that you're about to have. Yeah, you finish uh, us with this uh, topic and uh, about the advice, uh, having seen what you've seen in your experience in the sector on what would be the, you know, the, the first tips that you would have for companies that are wondering whether they need to do this kind of work at this stage? I think that um, when it goes back to what is this, let's, you know, takes us back to what we said at the beginning, this is the knowledge economy and this is ideas. And so these are assets that you're developing and your people, which are assets are also developing this. So in the same manner that you would take out insurance on your building or on your lab, you should quickly, as you're developing this asset, figure out the, strat the right strategy protect to protect it. In that sense, finding the right advisor is really important. And don't feel that you have to actually understand I global IP law. People will drown in that. And, you know, thankfully, there's people like Brian in the world that love doing that. But I think uh, similar to as you get advisors or as you get insurance, you don't need to understand everything. You need to understand the implications on your asset. But don't mire yourself in trying to understand all the various nuances of it. That's why you have an advisor. So, but again, it's an asset that you want to protect. It's your asset, your baby that you have 
nurtured and developed. And this is one of the really critical things as you move forward. Lots of great insight, lots of education, lots of good advice in all of this. Wendy Herbert at Life Sciences BC and Brian Kingwell at Gowling. Thanks for your time today. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Wendy. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief at BIV. Thanks a lot for watching. We'll see you again.